Welcome to the Kickstart Podcast, where we highlight the stories of how professionals kickstarted and navigated their successful careers. My name is Preston, and on this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting someone who is a successful biotech entrepreneur, author, investor, and public speaker. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. So I think a fitting way to start is to ask you, for those that don't know who you are or who are unfamiliar with your background, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm currently 40 years old. Um, I am a scientist by training and by nature. So uh, I studied molecular biology and biotechnology. I am from Austria, so I'm I'm currently situated in Europe, and I studied uh, in the UK and did my higher education there. And during during my studies, initially, I wanted to clone dinosaurs, so that's why I went into genetics, but uh, I eventually grew up and I found the field of human genetics more interesting, and then right out of university, I started a company, and that company is Novogenia, so it's a biotech Uh, lab it's kind of like 23andme Um, there's very little overlap so we're doing personal genomics Uh, we have a more medical spin and then we also go into personalized products so so there are not a lot of similarities and yeah um, i started it as a startup and now 13 years later we're on the stock market Uh, it has worked out it was a lot of hard work but uh, it was a wild ride that's absolutely amazing. How did you get into genetics? Is that something that you've always been interested in for a long time? Uh, yes, I, I hinted. Um, I wanted to become a paleontologist, a dinosaur mm-hmm. scientist when I was four. And uh, I was quite stubborn. I, I was going to become a paleontologist. And then when I was 11, the movie Jurassic Park came out. And that gave me the link from, from digging up bones with a toothbrush in the desert to working in a lab to work on a dinosaur and that got me into genetics and um, yeah as I said um, during my studies uh, I I grew up and (laughs) found other interesting areas to apply this knowledge to. Surely you have ample time or maybe opportunities in the future to always do a full circle back into the dinosaur realm Daniel. It's still Uh, interesting. With with your toothbrush (laughs) that dream still exists for you I believe. (laughs) Absolutely. so you went to, you're from Austria, and then you, you went to university in the UK, is that correct? Yes, to Manchester, uh, which is one of the leading biotech, comp- uh, biotech universities there. And um, the, the English school system is great. It's quite similar to, to the US system and quite different to uh, the system in, in my country. So that's where I went for 10 years. That's incredible. And then upon graduating, you started a your company relatively immediately it sounds like already during my study so while i was writing my phd thesis i already had the first analysis machine and during my free time i was starting to develop genetic tests and learning the technology and um, then i still had to do military service in my country so i went back home and uh, actually i could do a research project in a hospital instead and all the time in my free time i was working on the company and then eventually I was free to, to do it full time. Wow, that's interesting. So it's not like you worked in the corporate world for about 10, 15, 20 years and then started a company. You started a company essentially while, while you were still a student, which is very, very uncommon. I, of course, a lot of people around the world do it. Uh, but uh, for the people that we've had so far on the guests, uh, the guests on, the, on this podcast, a lot of them has worked you know, from five to 10 years before. Uh, taking a gamble on themselves. What was that like? Do you remember like, so what exactly did your business do from day one? How did you manage it between being a student and then being a business owner? Um, It also sounded like you then had to go back home, take a little break and then kind of resume. Um, And it sounded, it sounds quite hectic. How were you able to kind of manage everything? Um, Actually, I had quite a lot of free time during my PhD thesis. I I progressed quite well. I'm a hard worker, so um, I focus on things and that gave me time to also focus on another thing. I was looking for a business idea. I was juggling a few different things. And, and that was one of them where we actually progressed a little. And they had a business plan competition where I decided to take part. So that kind of kickstarted the whole thing. And it's from an idea to actually start to do something. And so, so that, that was good. 
uh, starting so early, I think, is uh, has a big di- advantage. So if you have nothing, there's nothing to lose. So it's mm-hmm. a quite easy step if you dare to do it. Um, the disadvantage is you're building a company without any understanding of what a normal company culture is. Mm-hmm. So I, I assume we're making a lot of <laughs> mistakes that you wouldn't make if you had worked in a in an environment. But being a startup, we were always broke. So we always hired people right out of university who didn't have very high salary expectations. So they had no idea what a normal company was like. So I think we, we built our own weird culture that way. <laughs> it sounded like it worked. What, what did, so what did your company do from day one? Like what was its mission or? Yeah, so, so we were three people. The idea was to do genetic testing for disease prevention. So that already puts you into the field of medical genetics, which is a whole different level of, uh, of regulation compared to lifestyle genetics, like weight management or ancestry. So, so we already started in, in a difficult category and we bought machines. Um, I was a scientist. We had one other guy um, doing the science and we had one business guy and that was it. And then we started developing the product uh, initially we didn't have an IT person so we outsourced a lot of that to to freelancers in India and Vietnam so everything very low cost and very low quality at the beginning and um, then we started creating genetic programs so one of them was a genetic test for thrombosis and there's certain prevention you can do to stay healthy and um, yeah, that's, that's how we started. So we developed more and more products. Um, initially, our idea was B2C on the internet, but that was in 2009. So way before all of this um, social media advertising existed and that didn't work at all. Uh, I wasted a lot of time sitting in doctor's offices for an hour to get three minutes to pitch my product. So that didn't work. So we had to pivot and we pivoted to B2B. So we had other people who found, found our, our concept interesting. We white labeled our products and services and then they sold and we could focus on developing the next test, the next technology and so on. Who, who was, when it was B2B, who was the end user? Was it other companies, other offices? It, it's always private individual, kind of like 23andMe um, okay. individuals by hackers or people interested in weight loss in healthy nutrition or disease prevention. Mm-hmm. So it's always them paying for it. And uh, initially we wanted to sell directly, but then we switched over to either a clinician who then sold it or to a nutritionist or a gym um, using our programs to, to service their customers. So for people who are completely unfamiliar with the world of genetic testing, how many things do you have to test for to establish some sort of like baseline for people to actually understand like what their body's doing well, maybe what's wrong with them, or maybe what, what they can expect in the future um, in layman's terms for people who are just unfamiliar? Yeah, it, it really depends on the question that you're asking. So lactose intolerance is a very common food intolerance. To be able to test for that, you just need one genetic variation, one genetic letter in a, in a person's genome. However, a human genome is 3.2 billion letters long. So that's just this one question where, where you look. Um, if you want to find out about weight management, um, am I carbohydrate sensitive or fat sensitive? So how should I change my diet? How should I train? Should I eat less or exercise more? This kind of information can be captured with around eight genetic variations. If you go into the field of healthy nutrition, what nutrients do I need? What vitamins are actually harmful for me? Which ones do I need in higher dosage? Um, We are at around 60 genetic variations. And um, yeah, the more open questions you ask, the more of the genome you need to cover. So it's really a, a question of what you're interested in. So when you're coming up with these tests, it's not like, hey, here's one test and you can figure out anything that you're allergic to, or um, it's it, it's not like a wide, just blanket sort of test. It's You have to make a test specifically for lactose intolerance, specifically for uh, insulin resistance, weight management, like you were saying, is that correct? Yes, that could be a blanket test, um, but to give you an idea, um, we're focusing everything on available science. So a scientist at a university decides, okay, I want to find out the cause for thrombosis, which is a blood clot disorder. Mm-hmm. So then he would recruit a thousand people, um, 500 of which had thrombosis, 500 which did not, and then he would do a genetic test and find out one genetic variation is responsible for this. Now that's one scientific publication. So a huge effort to find out this one piece of information. 
we have more than 4.2 million of these already. And that, that means we have so much information that no human being can ever capture all of this knowledge and, um, and give you a blanket um, interpretation of your genome. So what we are left to do is you ask what the question is. Do you want to know your breast cancer risk? Then we figure out the science and the genes that we need to test for. That is starting to change, however, and we're actually working on a system. Um, as I said, 4 million scientific publications, that's beyond human uh, competence to be able to, to capture that. So we are developing an AI system that is learning how to read these scientific publications. And it grabs the information and puts it in the database. And we're actually making this information freely available uh, we call it Genopedia. It's like Wikipedia for genetics and every mutation or genetic error ever found has its own Facebook page, you could say. So we are grabbing this complex scientific data and putting it in a database. And eventually uh, what we're going to be able to do is take your genetic code, the whole genetic code, run it through the algorithm and get the most accurate interpretation of what science knows about your genes. And uh, tomorrow you can run it again and then it's a little more accurate. And since we have around 9% of growth in science in, in that field, um, this is going to be a rapidly increasing and, and uh, improving system. That is so, so fascinating. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's great that you referenced 23andMe, obviously one of the OG brands out there that has really strong global recognition. I think there's a lot of other similar companies that are trying to do uh, what they're doing. But I think, Dan, you were just ahead of your time. If you just waited another, you know, 10 years, I think you would have been spot on uh, and you would have found product market fit perfectly. And who knows, it would have taken you completely different. But I, I think that's fascinating. How, so like when you take samples, is it through saliva? Is it through blood? Like how, how do you collect um, samples? Yeah. So theoretically, any tissue would work. Um, blood would work, but you need a clinician to, to collect it. Uh, finger prick hurts. So um, the most simple way is either a cheek swab, everybody's done it now through COVID, um, and the alternative is a saliva sample. So mm. we actually have become a big COVID lab in Austria, and um, we have had to produce so many collection kits that no medical device manufacturer could keep up anymore. So we needed around 2 million pieces per weekend. And uh, so we also had to develop, uh, invent and develop our own saliva collection kits for COVID or any other kind of uh, genetic testing. And um, so we've developed our own systems that allow us to do uh, sample collection at a high quality and that way it's cheaper for us and uh, we can produce it in the numbers that we need. That's incredible. Uh, talk to me more about that. So obviously COVID happened in 2020. No one obviously anticipated or, or expected it to happen. So, so when it came full fledged on the global scene, um, and then obviously we experienced a lot of the supply chain shortages, the test shortages. Wh what was the thought going through in your your team's mind? Like, wow, this is something that we can leverage our infrastructure or our testing capabilities and really just provide mm -hmm. tremendous value. Um, and then you just kind of executed. Like, what what did that look like in the early days? And how were you able to? pivot really quickly to, to become a, a huge player here. Yeah, so, so that was a very wild ride. So before COVID, we had around 70 employees. We were growing fast, um, had, were profitable for around 10 years. So everything was going fine. And then COVID came and uh, we didn't know what to expect. So we laid low, we reduced costs and just to see what happens. Uh, next financial crisis, you knew. And then we observed how badly the medical labs were doing. They were doing 500 tests per day and they were completely overwhelmed. And that's really not a lot of samples per day. And so uh, I did some calculations and with, with the technology that we had, we could have done 18,000 per day, which was more than the whole country at that time. And um, this technology, PCR, is just something that a geneticist uses to test a gene. And instead of testing human genes, all you need to do is test the virus genes. So it's, it's a very similar technology, and we were prepared for this. And so I, I got in touch with some government agencies and said, well, we would be here. We had no idea about the, the connections that you need or the processes to work with government. But uh, due to the extreme need, they were very happy to have one lab that can do all of their uh, the processes. So uh, a lot of counties switched over to us and we, we started testing for them. 
and uh, that grew to in the peak 1,500 employees. And so that's within a year from 50, from 70 to 1,500. And uh, on the biggest day, we did 275,000 samples per day in one night, actually. So, so this thing grew very, very much. Um, and the challenges were manifold. So the material was, uh, was not there. So reagents ran out, plastic ran out. Um, we probably had five days where we didn't know how to continue testing tomorrow. And um, since we did such a big area in Austria, we actually, um, that would have made quite a dent in the statistics. So, so that would have been bad press, but somehow we always managed to continue. We, we got some emergency reagents in some other way. So th that was a big, a big challenge. Uh, we could buy robots that did lab work, but then the supplier couldn't send us the plastic tips anymore. And it would only, used its own plastic tips. So we had to develop our own systems to, to change the robot so we could attach other tips and all of that in a 24 seven chaos of COVID testing. That sounds uh, unbelievable. You know, in, in the technology space, especially in, in the startup world where, you know, I operate uh, very deeply day to day, uh, to go from a success story, Daniel, of a 70 person team scaling to over a thousand in one year, is pretty uncommon. It's quite rare. That's I think that's what every uh, aspiring entrepreneur would, would love to do. But uh, I, I know that if you're just listening to this audio, you can't really see Daniel. But I'm talking Daniel. Daniel, you have a full head of hair. It's brown. It's not gray. You you did a, obviously a great job in, in surviving and pushing through you and your team. Uh, what must have been just a absolutely memorable experience, uh, and and of course I'm sure extremely uh, stressful as well. But when this was happening at its peak, were you like the biggest one of the biggest players here, or, or were there a lot of other companies doing the same thing as you? Um, overall, helping with, with with the country, like how it, it sounded like you were one of the big ones. Where if you weren't able to fulfill a lot of the supply issues, it, it could have become a huge issue, right? Yes. So. Austria was actually quite forward thinking in, in the testing strategy. So they've done um, widespread testing. So it, you can go to a supermarket, you can pick up our sample kits, you can take them home and mm. uh, drop them off at the supermarket every second day and the government pays for it. So it's very, very uh, low, low effort accessibility to tests. And so Austria did a, a huge amount of testing. And at the beginning, we were the biggest lab. Um, we have done more tests than the largest chains in Germany, which has 10 times more, uh, more uh, inhabitants. So on a European scale, where we did a lot of testing, um, I don't know about the, the US testing strategy, how, how many tests they did, but um, on that scale, yes. Another lab came uh, that did develop in, in Austria. So they are also quite big. So it's two bigger ones and uh, lots of small ones. I think we have 72 labs in, in Austria that did COVID testing. One thing that I found really fascinating is that a lot of the tests, because obviously for someone like myself that, that isn't um, a professional nor highly knowledgeable when it comes to genetics or just science in that domain in general, um, I didn't know that the tests that they initially used for COVID were tests that were widely used in science and genetics and in, in, in that field. And so it was, I guess, really, really interesting. It just kind of made sense. You, you know, you, you had capabilities, were able to leverage this, provide a huge kind of net positive impact to your country. I think that's fantastic. But my question is, for these tests specifically, I remember the, the early days, uh, there were a lot of like chatter of people talking about like, for example, the accuracy of these tests. So like, are they typically, do they have these same issues when it comes to testing for other genetic variations or different types of of, of DNA, RNA, or is it just the nature of COVID that really gave these tests a tough time that was unexpected? Yeah, so um, there are two main technologies of how to test for COVID. Um, the rapid tests that people do at home, um, they work very simplified um, in a way that you take a sample from your nose and you color the virus and then you look at how much color you have. So that's an, an optic kind of approach. That's very, uh, quite inaccurate. So you miss around 30% of positive cases and you have 2% uh, of cases are that are positive and not really positive. PCR on the other hand is a molecular technology and it's a 
copying mechanism. So mm-hmm. you take one virus in your saliva and you do a copying process and then you make two out of it and then four and then eight and then 16. And that way um, you really can detect a single virus in a sample. And that makes it very, very, very accurate. And the, the problem is you need a lab. So you need to transport it to the lab and uh, all of that. So it's, it's a lot more comp- uh, a lot more expensive. Now, um, with COVID, it's a quantitative thing. So you don't just want to know, is there a virus or not? You also want to know how much of it is there. Uh, PCR can do this. And um, that's something that that we developed. For genetics, it's a lot simpler um, because the genes are always there. You're not worried, is this enough? Is this a positive or negative? You're just wondering, is the gene working or does it have a mutation? Is it broken? So you always get the answer of, gene working or gene not working so it's it's a lot simpler also um you know there are all of these safety requirements if you work with a lethal virus in a lab and that's a lot simpler with yeah. with saliva samples from healthy individuals so with with covid in the future continuing to create all these subvariants do the tests have to evolve uh, themselves to be able to um, have the capacity or capabilities to identify these as well yes um they, they will have to um, most tests already look at three different areas in the viral genome. So all three would have to change in a significant way in a specific place for the current tests not to be able to pick it up. However, it does make sense to adapt it. It's not difficult for, for reagent manufacturers. They just add a different DNA sequence and then that works. And you also want to distinguish between the different variants. So the, the good reagents can already do this. So this will change and, and adapt with time. But um, at some point, we're going to give up, I think, because it's not going to go away. Um, we've seen this with the, the Spanish flu. Are you aware of this? The, the mm-hmm. last big pandemic that we had. Uh, what people don't know, the Spanish flu, which killed a lot of people, never actually went away either. A certain type of flu that you get today is a weak variant of the Spanish flu back then. And the same thing is going to happen with COVID. Wow, that's very interesting. I know that we didn't come here to speak specifically about COVID. <laughs> yeah. It just, the conversation ended up uh, with us doing so. But I, I think, again, fascinating and huge hats off to you and your team that did some tremendous, tremendous execution during the peak COVID days. So I guess going back, just to summarize, you started a company when you were a student, PhD, which is hard enough as is, and then you scale that to, I think before COVID, to a team of about 70 people. And you mentioned that initially the the vision was to do a B2C, B2B, and it seems like a lot of end users, even people like myself can can use uh, your testing products for a variety of reasons. So what is the main difference between you starting a company as a student and I guess right before COVID, um, are you, did your tests just become more robust or do you offer a lot of different tests for a lot of different uh, kind of inquiries coming your way? Or like, if you were to summarize your company today before obviously COVID happened, like what, what would it be? And what would your, some of your main products and services be? Yeah, so, so we are definitely a product building company. Since we outsource sales due to B2B, somebody else is doing it, uh, they can do it well. We can focus on developing uh, the next product. Now, a DNA test is a great investment because your genes are not changing. You do the investment once and it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. So that's good for the customer, bad for repeat business because you're selling a once in a lifetime service. Mm -hmm. So we started thinking about what other things make sense that also make financial sense, um, but also scientific sense. And so um, one logical approach was um, supplementation because we're putting a lot of effort into analyzing genes to find out that a certain nutrient does not actually work in this person. They need an alternative or they might actually be harming themselves with iron supplements. And um, then we don't have the solution for them. We can only tell them. And so we started developing hardware. So we created a, a whole new technology of how to encapsulate nutrients into microbeads. That's a very very small beads, kind of like the sugar sprinkles on a donut. Mm-hmm. And they contain lots of different vitamins. And then we built machines that could then personalize them. So mix different types of microbeads together and, um, and put them into little sachets. Um, we print your name on it. And uh, due to the number of teams that we look at, there are more than 700 trillion potential different outcomes. And everyone has their own recipe. And 
and we, we needed to to develop this technology to make it scalable to make it affordable even though it's an n equals one personalization so that was the next step and once that worked um the logical next one was cosmetics because again people age at different rates uh, some people need sun or stronger sunscreen others do not and a lot of genetic differences and ways in which um, certain nutrients can help in, in form of cosmetics or supplements. And so again, we look at genes, we do a report and we find out your individual requirements and then we can create cosmetics based on your genetics. So again, individually mixed for you. So we just kept going, uh, developing new technologies and new products. And, um, yeah, and then AI came and we started working in that area for, for genetic interpretation. So ah. we've just been busy. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it sounds like it. What, what, are, what are the main trends in terms of supplementations that you're kind of seeing over the past maybe, maybe decade? I guess another way to ask this is I, I think supplementation is quite fascinating. I've always been uh, into nutrition. And as you get older, you start paying more attention about health and wellness. But Supplementation, I think, is something that I believe a lot of people make effort to try to consume to a certain level every single day, but trying to find the right supplementation for you is very difficult. And um, even, you know, if you find, for example, iron or vitamin C, there's a lot of different forms that you can consume as well. And some might be more efficient than others, whether it's pill form, um, sachet, or maybe it's like completely liquid, um, or maybe there are some vitamins that are just completely, you know, useless for my body. It just doesn't absorb it at all or maybe it absorbs it much less than someone next to me. So finding the right information is difficult. Finding a lot of misinformation is also very easy to do, especially with social media and internet. Um, but what, what are your thoughts? I, I mean, are we coming to a point where to get the best bang for the buck, if you will, if a consumer like myself wanted to optimize my nutrition via supplementation beyond obviously what I'm consuming every day is my day-to-day -day diet. Are we just coming to a point where like we, I just have to get some sort of testing, molecular genetic testing to understand what my, what, what obviously what my body needs, uh, the deficiencies my body has, and then the right kind of vehicle to be able to to improve it versus just going to a local pharmacy store and getting all these multivitamins and just hoping for the best? Um, yeah, so you've hinted at it. The, the real problem is that we are so different that you can't just have a product that, that suits everyone. We know that statistically, and we've looked it up with the nutrients that we're working with, um, we have around 20 nutrients in our product. Statistically, one of the nutrients is harmful for you two are not working, then you're using the wrong form that your body can metabolize and the others are typically at the wrong dose. So that's from a multivitamin and that's the, that's the issues that we, uh, that we fix. So the ones that are harmful for you that are not uh, included, the ones that don't work are replaced by another form that does something similar and um, the other ones are dosed at the right amount. And there is just, we didn't want to build this personalization technology. It's very complicated, expensive, and hard to do. We, we would have preferred to have eight different bottles and you just get your name stuck on one of them and that's your personalization. But the truth is you, you, can, never, you can never fulfill what you really need to do with so many factors. And we've never found two people needing the same things. And that's the truth. Um, that just means we're so, so unique that... The only way to solve this is by personalizing it. The same goes for nutrition. The same goes for medicine, for drugs that you take. And mm -hmm. I mean, personalization is all around us. People get personalized shoes, personalized cars, personalized mobile phone covers. So why should nutrition or supplementation be in any, uh, any different? So if you really want an effective um, product, um, it needs to be adapted to your needs. Mm. And that's, that's a new trend. It's, it's expensive to do, but uh, personalization, as I said, is, is coming everywhere. So if someone were to just approach you saying, hey, Daniel, I try to eat healthy. I want to do a little bit more of my body. I'm thinking about going to a random store to get multivitamins or vitamin B. Like, what, what is your recommendation usually? It's like, you know, that's completely useless. You shouldn't do it. Or <laughs> what, what can the average person do with the products that are available? I would be willing to bet. I, I've never done this before, but I would be willing to bet that if you use the standard healthy nutrition guidelines or use a standard multivitamin that I can find a scientific reason what, uh, that some of this is wrong. 
Um, there are just so many exceptions that the standard uh, recommendations don't apply to, to anyone. So I would say it's better than doing nothing, but you might actually be harming yourself or you might oh, be wow. wasting money because it doesn't work. So that's that's what we see. That's, that's what the concept of personalized medicine that is coming um, is trying to embody. That's, that's the crazy. future. And then how do you, you personalize it based on, for example, a test that they would do, right? To, to the, a genetic test, then you use that data to create a personalization formula that's yeah. optimal for that. Interesting, I see. So, so, so one example is folic acid, for example. Mm -hmm. um, folic acid is a very strong substance. It, it protects your heart. Uh, pregnant women use it to protect their fetus mm -hmm. uh, because the, the baby needs activated folic acid to develop. And if you have a deficiency, uh, the baby can have birth defects. Now, gynecologists give folic acid to pregnant women. So that's a good idea. However, what they don't know is that around 8% of people don't have a working gene that actually activates folic acid into the active form called methylfolate. So they take it, if they did a blood test, it would say folic acid is high, everything's fine, but the truth is it's not working. And um, that's one of these cases. These pregnant women really need this substance, but it doesn't work in them. But there's an alternative. You can already take the activated form. And those are, those are cases that are very well uh, researched. So the folic acid thing is, is it covered in more than 300 scientific publications. So we've known this for quite a while, and it still hasn't reached the gynecologist's office. And that's just one of many stories of how nutrients are, are influenced by our genes and what we can do with this information. Wow. And that's only just one example, too. And yes. so you are a product company. And you mentioned that do you, a lot of these AI cosmetics, um, you also do uh, supplements, you white label these, or do you have your own brands that you own as well? I know, I know you mentioned B2B, like other, other companies have more consumer market facing, but if someone were uh, listening to the podcast and like, wow, I'm really into nutrition. I would love to up my game and be able to invest in my body with some sort of personalized testing. Is it something that's available right now in market that they, they can go check out? Perhaps what about your AI cosmetics as well, in case people are curious? Yeah, so, so it's it's a mix. So in Europe, we do white label for large companies. So we do new products. It's under the brand of, of a large company and we're quite flexible. We, we build machines and technologies and, and new things to fulfill these requirements. We have our own brand for smaller B2B, um, which might be a nutritionist. In the US, we actually, we actually founded a company called Routine Vitamins. Um, and um, we applied to the Techstars Accelerator and um, we built a great team there and um, essentially they're building the US market. So, so that's the way to, to get those products. Um, you can buy a blood test or a DNA test and the algorithm will then recommend uh, the, the nutrients to you. You can check out on the dashboard what nutrients you would need and then you can get right uh, exactly these products. So that's, amazing. So, so that's our... Uh, our presence in the US. It's a separate company, but uh, we helped found it. And That's amazing. And what about the, do they also do the cosmetic products as well? Or is that just strictly the personalization of supplementation? It's just a supplementation and uh, testing. Wow, that, that's amazing. Now, I know we, we skipped forward a couple of steps, but for someone like myself, that's really passionate about just overall like recruiting and building teams and companies, uh, I did not want to go further in the podcast without addressing the fact that for someone who started a company out of PhD program and scaled a company to about over 70 people, that is really, really amazing. And I think that's credit to where credit is deserved. But from someone like yourself that did not have like a corporate career, or you didn't start like five, six other successful companies before, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned for just almost kind of muscling, brute forcing and building a company uh, from a very unconventional start and being able to scale it? Like what's, what's one couple things that, that you have learned along the way, tips, tricks that you would like to share to the audience and in case that, you know, people who are listening are also building their own companies and you kind of, it seemed like for someone uh, who started a company like you did, you know, you just have to figure things out as you went and get smarter and evolve and evolve as a scientist, evolve as a leader, a business operator. Um, we'd love to just hear like a little bit more about your experience there. Um, yeah. So initially I was blessed with a very good team. So up to, up to 70, the, the, 
atmosphere in the company was very positive. People are friends. So um, I hired my friends and other people hired their friends and family. So we are a very friendly, friendly bunch. I know some people say, don't do this. Uh, don't work with your spouse and so on. I did the opposite. So I'm, surra- I'm surrounded by great people. Actually, a lot of people say don't do that. So how it's very, the, the, I think the reason why people say that is because it's very difficult to, there's no clear line between treating someone as an employee uh, versus someone as a friend. And, and that line can be easily exploited or blurred um, or just maybe non-existent. So like how were you able to successfully hire a bunch of friends and your colleagues and their colleagues hired a bunch of friends and still be able to maintain a, a productive and collaborative and positive culture and atmosphere. You can't work with everyone of your friends. That's that's definitely something. The, you must have a matching um, attitude to work and so on. So I've now had an issue with my friends. Uh, working with your spouse is a little more complicated because there's no respect at all. And um, not what you say, but how you say it is important and all of that stuff. So <laughs> that has a few a few difficulties, but also a, a lot of advantages. So you can talk about things that fascinate you at home and, and so on. So uh, if, you, if you can handle it, I, I highly recommend it. So yeah, find, find the right friends that you like working collaboratively with and then um, see if it works out. And if it doesn't, you should be able to walk away with, without it being an issue. But I've never had that problem. It, it was great working with my friends and Actually, the book from Tony Shea, who uh, who founded Sappers, was, was the one that inspired me to do this. So I was worried about hiring or working with friends and founding with friends. And then that book just changed my opinion. He said he hired all his friends. They hired their friends. They hired their friends. And it was the greatest company culture. I wanted that. That's amazing. I think if there's a way for people to hire some of their good friends, I think any, everyone would do it. I think it's just about cracking the code and trying to do it properly. But um, I, that, I, that's actually a great book. I read it a long, long time ago. Um, a lot of people say that for a founder, for managers, as the company, as a team evolves, the manager and the leader has to evolve as well. What is like some of the biggest lessons that you have to learn managing a team of five versus managing a team of 30 versus managing a team of, of 70? Yeah. So up to 70, it was awesome. I knew everybody uh, and it was a great atmosphere. And then this COVID explosion came and we we did not have the time to, to integrate new people into our culture. So, uh, you know, we had night shifts, 24 hour um, work. So, so some people didn't get to know each other uh, at all. And, and that did negatively impact um, some of the, the, the company atmosphere. And I don't think we handle it well. Uh, I just want to give a, a word of warning. This is something that is very, very, very important. If, um, if you don't look after this, it's very easily to be destroyed. Some people are negative and they can create a negative environment. So, so um, this is a very big priority in my, uh, in my current work to, to make sure that the atmosphere or the environment uh, remains positive. So I did not know that this was so important. Um, it inf- impacts how, how much I like to work uh, w- with, my, with my colleagues. So that's a very, very big one. Also, uh, being a startup under the radar is a lot easier because at the beginning, you know, nobody, nobody recognizes it if your website is down <laughs> and so on. So small problems, um, they, they just go unnoticed. And, and then uh, we reached a certain level and uh, that changed into a very different approach. So when our website was down, we were in the newspaper the next morning <laughs> because COVID broke down again and so on. So every small error uh, became very visible and and at some point, you also reach a, a level of significance where competitors start to not be happy that you're around. And, and most of our competitors are friends of mine now, but uh, there are some which use every legal way that they can to damage you. And that's annoying. Um, so, so there are new things that happen there. Um, and also, you need to become more professional. And us, us having gone public in, at the same time, not because of COVID, but... Um, at the same time, also transformed us into a lot more professional. Um, you know, the finance aspects must be 
plan better um, and you, you're starting to be analyzed by external people they criticize what doesn't work and so on so so that's a, a road from fast and agile and mvp to a more professional stable approach and that's a completely different skill set so uh, you really go through a lot of different evolutions as a startup founder which experience did you enjoy the most or resonate with? The scrappy early stage founder or the polished executive? I, I think I think it's an awesome journey from mm. really, I mean, when we had to write our first invoice, we asked ourselves, okay, how do we do that? And what must go on it? And I think it took us two years to write the first correct invoice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was our biggest hurdle at the beginning. And now it is uh, how do we have a number of companies now and, and how do we combine them into, uh, into a company group invoicing and so on. So it's really it, everything grows in scale and you, what you've learned before is starting to become uh, more important and, and at a larger scale. So it's very exciting all along. Uh, it's always a new challenge. It hasn't become boring. It's just continuously changing. I have a great affinity for startups that, uh, that are in this constant near-death situation. <laughs> um, I think we had 10 near-death experiences. It makes you harder and, and you're able to, to take more. So it's, it's all an important experience. Uh, having money and being able to build products with money and expertise is a new world. And um, I think I think all of it is exciting. I wouldn't want to miss any part of it. How big is your team now? So, so the original team grew to around, you know, 70 people who did our core business are now around 250. So we've, we've, we haven't stopped doing our core business. We actually used the time to bring it to a new professional level and expand it and expand capacity for production and so on. So... Yeah, around 250 and another 100 that are doing some COVID things externally. That's amazing. And for, um, and most of the positions in, in the core kind of uh, corporate office, it's all in Austria, right? Do you have a, a headquarters in Austria, like an office there? We do. Actually, when, when we were on 70 people, we bought a building that was much too big for us, 4,000 square meters. I don't know that in details, sorry. And um, it was actually a medical device manufacturer, so it was quite quite suitable for us, but uh, way too big. And now it's way too small. And we were thinking of how to extend it. And we actually decided that, that we're going to build a twice as big uh, company um, next to our current building and, and upgrade to a more modern lab. And then we have more space for all of the uh, manufacturing and lab things that we want to do. So it's, it's in Austria. We do have some remote workers. Um, some things need to be done on site, but uh, some things do work remote as well. What are your thoughts to testing the, 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 I guess, the developing areas of testing that people are doing to try to delay aging or maybe <laughs> stop aging or trying to avoid aging altogether? Do you think uh, it will come to a point with technology uh, where maybe that's happening or that, that maybe there are options that you can do that right now? I, I just don't know, um, nor mm -hmm. am I too knowledgeable in that space, but what, what, what are your thoughts to that in a lot of these hormone therapies or a lot of these other things that you can do to slow down aging, stop aging, get younger type of that umbrella. Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you think that will continue to develop into the future? Yeah, actually, um, what you're asking is actually the last chapter in my book. Um, I have written a book about genetics. Uh, it's only available in German. We're working on the English translation. Um, so there we talk about how genes inf impact our nutrition, our, our health, our medication and so on, and, and how to get the best out of this information. And the last chapter is all about uh, eternal life. And I am very sure that eventually we're going to reach uh, eternal biological life. Um, there are already a lot of therapies and, um, and approaches that can prolong lives. It has shown to work in, in animals and people are start, starting to take very specific cocktails of nutrients and sometimes even medication that has shown to, to um, promote um, longer life. And uh, what people don't realize, um, when we become 80 years old, we are already three times as old as our ancestors in the Stone Age. So we are already quite far along those lines and things are just getting better. And um, maybe you've heard about the concept of escape velocity, 
Um, the idea is science of prolonging life um, is growing at such a fast pace that eventually we're going to learn how to live one year longer in under a year. And that would mean you eventually reached escape velocity. That means science will always cure what you're going to die of next. And um, that, that's one of the principles. And, um, you know, artificial organs are coming, stem cell therapy can rejuvenate um, our tissues and so on. So I am I'm very confident that this will come. Some scientists claim that the first person who will live forever is already born. I'm cautiously optimistic about this. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure we're going to get there, but I just don't know how fast. When people are aging, what, what does that mean? What is happening in our bodies that make us age just to make it as, as uh, to put it in, in the simplest way possible for yeah. the audience? Yeah, so, so first, the evolutionary reason why we age. Um, evolution has one goal, and that is you are a mixed bag of genes, and let's see if, you're, if your combination of genetics is fit enough for you to find a mate to avoid predators and procreate. If yes, that's a good mix of genes. Um, so evolution, and, and if you're not, if you're caught by a saber-toothed target because your legs are short or, or you die of asthma, you can't run after the deer, then um, then you're not a good mix of, of genes. That's how evolution works. You don't procreate, your genes are gone. Mm. So, so the evolutionary process works until procreation. And um, at that point, it was successful. And then there is no more selective pressure for you to live on longer because you've already passed on your genes. And that's why nature keeps us healthy up until the age when we are fathers, we've raised our children and then uh, we start to yeah get little aches and then the diseases come and our eyes get, get weaker and so on. So, so there was no reason for nature to keep us alive because not necessary. So, so that's the key reason. And it's just an accumulation of different problems that happen. So um, one of them is, um, is called telomeres. So when our cells divide, they actually need to duplicate our gene, uh, our genetic code. Now the genetic code is... Um, is arranged in chromosomes. So th those are bunches of, um, it's a long string of DNA um, and it looks like an X shape on the microscope. And during every duplication, the, pro the, the copying process loses some pieces at the ends. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, it's not a problem. We have spare DNA at the ends and we lose this. And at some point it's so short that you start chopping away genes. And that's when the cell says, okay, uh, this is getting dangerous. I might become cancer. I'll go into sleep mode. And those sleeping cells, we call them senescent cells, they start to accumulate. So you get more and more sleepy cells in your tissues um, where there should be ones that are contributing to your health. So those start to accumulate. Um, the older you get, the more this happens. Um, mm -hmm. Another one is um, certain, certain chemicals, free radicals, we call them, uh, start to damage your your uh, skin, your, your cells, and so all of that uh, aging is happening. And there, there are a number of other things that, that are getting out of control just because nature had no reason to maintain these problems with time. Wow, that's so fascinating. It's so interesting to think of myself as just a combination of, of genes. Like it's like I'm just a giant experiment and then we'll see <laughs> if, if I can continue to, to, to fend off and avoid saber tooth uh, well, they don't exist anymore any tigers or lions these days and bears to to grow old to the ripe age of 80 but i i think that's fascinating i think that's um really uh extraordinary that that you think that something like the eternal life people can live forever or science get to that uh that point where it becomes a reality it's still uh very much for obviously for someone like myself it feels more like science fiction than reality but for someone like yourself that's deep into the world of genetics i think that's absolutely fascinating absolutely it's it, people underestimate um the power of exponential growth mm -hmm. if you look back 50 years what we could do with science you look forward there's no comparison this is an exponential curve. So it's always difficult to predict an exponential trend and we are definitely in an exponential trend with medicine. And 
yeah so it's very exciting what the future will bring speaking of future what what is the what is the one thing do you have a dream do you have like a, a big goal that you want to realize uh in into the future in terms of new products and service that you want to develop and you've done supplementation you've done you know cosmetics you've done ai is it just iterating uh, you know these three main kind of products or, or what if you could develop maybe one more or or is there a North Star that really, really excites you that you're just trying to kind of grab for um, to push your company in, in the field of genetics um, into the future? Is there something that uh, you really want to do? Yes. And that's actually why I started this company, not because of dinosaurs, as I said, that was, <laughs> that was before. But um, I realized that I wanted to solve one of the big problems. And one of the big problems that we have is uh, genetic diseases. Um, as I said before, we used to have the saber-toothed tiger. He caught you if, you if your genes weren't optimal and we had a constant um, filtering out of the gene pool. And now, thankfully, we have the supermarket and people with short legs can also survive. Um, but um, we start to accumulate more and more problems, uh, genetic problems, genetic um, mutations that we fix with medication. If you have asthma, you get asthma spray and you live on and have children with asthma. But they are they are also ha uh, happy and, and healthy, so um, we are we're getting into an area where we are going to have too many genetic problems that um, we eventually need to fix. Mm -hmm. So my idea was I want to eradicate genetic diseases. They are not supposed to be here, and we can fix them eventually. And um, that's actually how how I started the company. I wanted to fix genetic diseases, but a student won't be. Uh, won't, won't be allowed to meddle with piece, uh, people's genes to fix uh, fix the broken genes. So, so I, I did a several step plan. So the first plan was okay. Let's do lifestyle and preventive genetics. Let's just observe and give advice, and then um, we are moving towards a solution. Not not just looking into the genes, which is what we've done so far. We're providing solutions. One of them is personalized supplements or personalized cosmetics to counteract uh, what we found in your genetics and uh, in the future we're going to fix genes um, so we have invested in a company that does gene therapy and it's working on gene therapy to actually fix uh, broken genes and kidneys that's one area and there are many many more severe diseases that really should not exist and i i want to play my part in eradicating these genetic diseases so everybody has the same the same healthy start um, at life wow so theoretically there is a, a scenario where in the future people don't have to suffer from genetic illnesses absolutely and live forever I, I, yeah <laughs> so actually i myself have have uh, a rare genetic disease there are around eight thousand rare genetic diseases and um, i have alpot syndrome which is um one of them and it causes my, uh, I'm still healthy now, but it causes my kidneys to deteriorate over time. Oh, wow. So at the age of 60, I'm going to need a transplant or dialysis. So that's actually one of these diseases. Um, it's quite mild in my case, so, so that's fine, but I'm not too worried about it. That's not why I became a geneticist. As I said, it was dinosaurs, but that's one of the ones where you really cannot do much about it. And in the future, we're going to be able to fix this. And this is still quite a mild disease. There are genetic diseases where the mother brings uh, um, the birth as a child and then watches this child to die over 10 years as the muscles start to deteriorate and so on. So very, very severe diseases that should be cured. And that's what I want to play a part in. Wow, I, I think that's that's incredible. And, and I, I hope you continue to get a step closer to making that happen. One more thing, what, if just, what about just kind of uh, common colds and sicknesses? Do you think um, it could also reach a, a situation where people just don't get sick anymore? Or it, it's either you don't get sick anymore, or if you do get sick, you can just recover significantly faster, right? Maybe your body just has the right tools uh, equipped to just process it or get rid of it. Um, much more efficient than it can now? Or, or I don't know, is there any science to that that you can connect to um, what you're doing or just your field? I'm just curious. That's a tricky one because viruses are continuously fighting against mm -hmm. uh, any defenses that our immune system can make. And we've seen this. The different variants of COVID are all getting around the, uh, the, the immunity and the, the vaccinations. I do see a potential where we could create an mRNA vaccine like we've developed for COVID 
that is so broad spectrum that it can predict all sorts of variants that could come from a certain virus. Mm. And I think that could be a very powerful um, technology to improve this. Um, I don't think we'll ever get rid of viruses. Mm -hmm. um, they, they are just so similar to us. That's the problem. They're using the same instructions as our cells have themselves. And the instruction are just build a virus rather than do your normal cell stuff. And mm -hmm. um, they're hijacking our natural processes and that makes them so, so difficult to fight because anything that disrupts their replication is also a problem for ourselves. And so I think these will stick with us, but um, the mRNA technique is, is awesome in, uh, in fixing or creating vaccines. I think there's a lot of potential there. I was just genuinely getting excited about the future that you're painting with eternal life and no genetic diseases. <laughs> I just thought, you know, we can continue with that momentum being like, yeah, maybe no viruses, but uh, who knows, maybe it's a possibility. Yeah. But, but Daniel, I just want to really thank you uh, so much for sharing a lot of your experiences. And if people who are like gen genuinely interested, they want to reach out to you, perhaps get your book, where, where can they find your book? I know you, you said it's in German right now. Uh, but where, where would they be able to find a copy of that? Uh, and how can they reach out to you if they want to reach out to you? Yeah, so my book is called Die Macht unserer Gene, so The Power of Our Genes. It's available on Amazon. We are working on the English translation, but that's still going to take half a year until we're, uh, we're done with this. So yeah, if you know German, then that's that's one, one uh, possibility also available on Audible. If people want to reach out to me, they can yeah, get a hold of me of, uh, on LinkedIn to reach me directly or contact the, the holding of our company, Darwin. It's called Darwin. So it's info at darwin.com or Novogenius. So various ways of how to get in touch with me. And lastly, if, if people who are listening, you know, just really resonate with your story and a lot of the exciting and, and successful kind of products you developed thus far, and maybe you hope one day that they would love to work with you and your team. Surely you and your team are hiring will continue to hire into the future um, out of your Austrian office. So um, if you can give a sense, like if you were hiring, what sort of positions would you be hiring for? If people are interested, how, how could they apply? So actually, we are always looking for great people in various areas. So AI, bioinformatics is an interesting one. Also online marketing. So, so we're building our own brands. So um, marketing in the European space, um, sales, building sales structures in Europe. That's another one. But yeah, we're always looking for great people in all areas. And then perhaps if they also have an affinity for dinosaurs or genetics, and they've, as early as you, four years old, they'd be able to maybe fine print that on their cover letter resume. Maybe uh, you'll give them a pass to a, a first round interview. Uh, I think once once we fix the genetic diseases, then we might be hiring paleontologists and work at the dinosaur problem <laughs> again. <laughs> There's always an opportunity. But Daniel, I mean, I, I again, just generally want to thank you. I, I, there's only so much that you can go over uh, in, in an hour. And um, I, I think molecular genetics is truly fascinating. It's actually something that I think a lot of people don't really think about, but if you do have a chance to sit down and really think about what this molecular genetics mean, what does it do and what could it mean for our race moving forward and yourself and your body and your health moving forward? It's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, and I think the work that you've done, uh, truly shows a lot of the different kind of positive ways that you're, you're impacting, you will impact a lot of people's lives. And I think that the biggest thing that really stood out to me is the fact that you, at a very young age of four, even though those were dinosaurs, but you were really interested in this field and you were able to go through school and then from school, just almost uh, have a career that you, you made look too easy. You started a company, you scaled it to 70, COVID happened, scaled it to a thousand. Um, and, and now you're working on really a lot of different products, a lot of different verticals. Um, pushing the science forward. So having spoken to a lot of other founders and uh, people starting different businesses, I think you starting your business the way you did in a very unconventional way is truly inspirational. And um, I, I just, again, want to want to thank you for your time, for the insight that you're able to share and really excited to see what you and, and your team will do and your company will do in the future. But if I can maybe just ask one more thing, typically the best way we love to end these podcasts is by asking if there is one advice that you want to share for the audience just everything you learn from whether it's having a successful career 
um, building a company, scaling a company, management, it could be anything. What, the biggest advice that you would like to share with someone who wants to hopefully follow in your footsteps, what would it be? Go as fast as you can. Uh, don't make it perfect. Launch it soon. Be ashamed of your product, but launch as quickly as you can. That's that's the number one advice by far. If you build a business, if um, if you if you wait until it's perfect, your your competitors are going to be far further than you, and you're going to have uh, you will have built a product um, that you that was wrong for the audience. So launch as quickly as possible and learn and then react quickly when you get feedback. That's my absolutely number one advice. I love it. And we will certainly uh, do our best to implement it in our day-to-day life. Uh, but Daniel, thank you so much again. And we will be closely monitoring any news coming out of Austria, specifically about eternal life, maybe dinosaurs, or maybe the, the next trend of molecular genetics. And uh, just again, uh, wish nothing but tremendous success to you and your team. You've done an amazing job and I uh, can't wait to see what you guys will do into the future. Perfect. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Perfect. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe for other great stories that are coming up. If you need any help with hiring, know of anyone who's looking for a job or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at www.kickstartfinder.com. Really, really appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next one.